Amen. All right. Well, good morning, church. My name is Billy Gifford. I'm the executive pastor here. Um, yeah, and so if you didn't know, we're doing the Advent series, and we've been tracking through the past two weeks. It's been about love and then peace, and my beautiful wife was actually the one who lit the, the right. candle of hope this morning. If you're wondering who that stunning woman was, taken. Um, <laughs> sorry. But uh, yeah, so the past two weeks we've been doing Advent. It's kind of been the focus of the fact that he came. And so this week and next week, we're kind of shifting gears towards the fact that he's coming. So a little bit of a shift. Um, and I kind of want to start with sharing some Christmas traditions that I grew up with. Yes. Christmas traditions are fun. Now, my favorite one that I want to share is I literally thought I was the only one who had this tradition. I think I found out that like probably everyone does this. But it was the tradition of opening a, a present on Christmas Eve. Has, how many people have did that growing up? You've got one present on Christmas. So literally like the whole room. That's amazing. I, like probably until like two years ago, I was like, wait, do other people do this? But uh, that was definitely my favorite tradition, just that little foretaste of the presents to come. I just like, you know, I love that. I, I wouldn't pay attention to church on Christmas Eve, just so you know. So I'm thinking of that one present I'm going to get. Okay? Don't judge me. Um, but another tradition uh, that we had was me and my sisters, so I have three sisters, two older and one younger, and we had this habit that I'm now calling a tradition of sneaking out on Christmas Eve to spy on the events of the night. And so when I say we had this habit, I mean we would collectively talk about it. My sisters would hype it up, be like, we should go and see like, the presents that are coming. And I'd be like, yeah, that's exciting. And then they'd look at me like, Bill, you should go do it. I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. And so they would coax me into doing it. That way, if I got caught, I would be the one to get the spanking, not them. And I'm man enough to admit I got ca I caught a few times. I, I'll admit that. Um, but they felt pretty guilty about it, so that was, that was reassuring. <laughs> but it, it wasn't before long my parents got smart and decided to lock us in the room on Christmas Eve. And it's so funny how they did this. My dad took a crayon a Crayola, and just put it on the carpet and leaned against the door. So if in the morning that crayon had fallen over, evidence we had tampered with it and we had tried to escape. If it wasn't, then we were fine, right? Clever, very clever. The crayon had a lot of power over us that night. Um, but of course, I found a way out. I mean, before I was a pastor, I was an engineer. Uh, so I was not going to let a crayon stop me, come on. And so one Christmas night, I snuck out to, to see what was going on, to see what old St. Nick had brought. Um, and that, this wasn't my first rodeo. I knew what to expect, lots of presents, just to get a... I, I would go down and just look at everything. I don't know what I would do with that, just look and then go back. But I knew what to expect. And this one Christmas, I went down and I was disappointed because I saw one present, one present. And it was a foosball table, okay? Now, don't get me wrong, I, I was really grateful for it. I became the best player in the house. But I was like, where's, where's everything else? Like, what about all the other presents? Um, Santa had done a, a one and done on us. And I was thinking to myself, like, what happened? Like, was it in March? What, what happened in March? Like, I think it was that thing with us. My sisters, I don't know. I, I, was, I was shattered. I mean, I was so devastated. So I went back up to the, to the room and reported back to my sisters. Like, did Santa come with her presents? And I was like, yeah, there was present, like singular. There was one. It wasn't even wrapped. It was a foosball. I don't even know what a foosball table is at the time. Um, <clears throat> but I got to this place where I was like, what's there to look forward to in the morning? 
You know, like there's, that, that was it, there's a foosball table. And I was hopeless that Christmas night. Of course, the next morning, Chris presents showed up and there was redemption and all was fine and I forgot about it. But <laughs> all hope is lost or there's no hope. These are terms we're familiar with um, and probably more so feelings we're familiar with. I would doubt that there's anyone in this room who has never experienced that sense of hopelessness at some point in their life, whether big or small. And so it's a very common experience for people. And what I want us to see today is that without the return of Christ, there truly is no hope. What the Bible, when the Bible talks about hope, it is mainly and often referring to the coming of Christ. Hopelessness is actually quite fitting without this fact. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the rarest of these is hope. That's not what the Bible says. If you all were checking, the Bible says the greatest of these is love. But I think that's fitting. The rarest of these is hope. The Bible presents to us uh, many pictures of hopelessness. I mean, all of our favorite Bible stories contain an element of hopelessness. Abraham had to sacrifice Isaac. Joseph was sold into slavery. Uh, Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites free. Jonah was swallowed up by a fish. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Lazarus was dead. That's pretty hopeless. That's like he gets the hopeless prize. <laughs> Paul was imprisoned. <clears throat> Jesus was falsely accused and then crucified. And those are just to name a few. And so these are hopeless, all in the sense, in the worldly sense, meaning the chances of getting out of this mess are kind of slim, right? And so, you know, reflecting back, it wasn't just a few weeks ago, Tyler preached a sermon on biblical hope. And I just want to kind of summarize, just put it fresh in our mind again of the difference between biblical hope and worldly hope. Because there's a very big difference. And I'm going to try to sum it up in one word. Worldly hope is wishful. Biblical hope is certain. Worldly hope is wishful. It comes from a desire. Biblical hope is certain. It comes from a promise. Worldly hope says, I hope the weather will be nice tomorrow. <clears throat> what does that mean? It means I have no idea if it's going to be nice tomorrow. I want it to be nice tomorrow. I can't trust the weather app. Like, I don't know. I hope that I will remain in good health all my life. That means I want to remain in good health, but I actually don't know if I will. Biblical hope, now this, this may sound strange, but I hope that I will die someday. That sounds like nonsense, but in the biblical use of the word, that makes sense. It means I am certain of it. It's coming. It's not sure yet, but I'm certain it will come. That is the difference between faith and hope. And that is something that I've always had a kind of blurry understanding between like faith and hope, they kind of sound the same. Uh, but if I could simplify it again, it's faith is referring to then as in, in the past and now, and hope is referring to now and then as in the future. Both touch us now, but faith is a certainty in what is, hope is a certainty in what is to come. Does that make sense? So we have faith in Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. This gives me hope to, to live a new life the days that I'm going to live out. We have faith in the, the promises of Scripture and what is written and spoken. That gives me hope that I can experience it as I live my life. There's a 16th century Anglican cleric named William Gurnall who wrote this. Faith tells the soul what Christ has done, and hope revives the soul with the news of what he will do. 
but both draw sweet wine from the same source, Christ and his promise. So faith is a completed promise. Hope is a coming promise. Romans 8 puts it this way, 24 verse 20 to 25. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So we may hope for a breakthrough in a certain situation. We may hope for a better circumstance. We may hope for healing or for a family member or a friend. And these are great hopes. Amen. Like the, the Bible gives us great hope and steadfast hope for, these, for, for situations like this. But there is something larger that the Bible describes should be the Christian's hope. Do you know what the Bible says your hope should be? I gave it away in the beginning. So it's the return of Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely, that's all your hope, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation or the revealing of Christ Jesus. Titus 2, verse 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So our hope is in one day Jesus Christ is actually coming back to planet Earth. That is the biblical hope. I want that to be very clear. The hope is not for a just a tomorrow as in tomorrow because that will run out. But the hope that doesn't run out is Christ coming forever to reign. And so the world is actually longing for a person to make it right. Like there are so many problems in the world, and the world's looking for a Messiah or a Savior. They just don't know it. Or rather, they just won't submit to God. They won't humble themselves. And so they're looking for this in a, in a person to, or a man to, to run the government, right? We're looking, the world is looking for a man to run the government and provide this strong unity and peace, and to solve all the world problems. It, it seems to me that we as a society are inching closer to this idea where we can have, where some, we're looking for someone, just a person to actually fix everything. And it won't be long before we deify the person who does. It won't be long. But who is actually fit to provide this kind of government? What's it going to look like? Will it be capitalist or communist? Will it be like a single country kind of running the show, like the United States? Or would it be like a group of nations, like the United Nations? Like, how, how does this all work? There are so many problems, and we are in dire need of a solution. It was Napoleon who once said, <clears throat> Alexander, Caesar, and I conquered the world by force. But Jesus conquered it by love, and there are millions alive today who would gladly die for him. He was referring to how Jesus was only here for three and a half years, and yet thousands of years later, he still has millions of followers who would gladly die for him. You see, what we, know, we know what he did in those three and a half years and how it forever changed the world. Do you think about it? Three and a half years. So what if he stayed for 10 years? <laughs> okay. What about 50 years? Or forever? If he stayed forever, his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy, as Romans 14, 17 talks about, would be multiplied to the ends of the earth. That is the center of our hope. Our hope is not in one world government. 
Our hope is not in all countries getting rid of their nuclear arms. Our hope is not in creating this perfectly clean energy world. The only solution to the human problem is Christ returning. That is the only solution. The world is trying to create this kingdom of God on the earth without God, without the king. They're trying to wipe away every tear. The world is trying to overcome death, get rid of all mourning and pain and crying, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. But do you know who can accomplish all that? Jesus can. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. He says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. Remember Tyler's message last week? Tabernacled, dwelt, God dwelt with us. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. These things have passed away. This is what the world is longing for. But without Christ, they are hopeless. Ephesians 2.12 makes this very clear. It says, remember that you were at a time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Separate from Christ and no hope go hand in hand. So he's been once and we've seen what he's like. Again, John 1.14, the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we saw his glory. We know what he can do because we've seen it and we see what he continues to do by his spirit. And this gives us hope. In fact, Isaiah puts it this way in the prophecy directly related to Christmas, the birth of Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So it's in this Christmas prophecy, if you can call it that, that we get the promise that he and he alone can carry the government of the world. We have every confidence that he and he and he alone can help us in this situation we're in, in the hopeless situation we're in. We're ready to give a reason to anyone who asks. We're ready to give a defense for this hope. As 1 Peter 3 says, let me read that real quick. Verse 15, 1 Peter 3, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, with gentleness and reverence. So Christmas actually gives us a good reason to have this hope. Because when we look back at the advent of Christ, his first advent, it gives us assurance and certainty of his second advent, the future coming of Christ. See, Christmas didn't happen out of the blue. I think we understand this. The events that we see in nativity scenes, the, the songs we sing in Christmas carols, the Christian ones, not jingle bells and stuff. That's not prophesied. <laughs> it wasn't just random. Like, it wasn't that Jesus was born one day and some shepherds decided to make a big deal about it. It was all predicted. They were expected. For nearly a 1,000 years, an entire nation believed he would come. 
And prediction after prediction had been given in detail. And every one of them came true. The circumstances of his birth were promised beforehand by God and written down, by the way, so they could be checked. And they all came to pass. Even his birth in Bethlehem, in Judea. Let me read a few of them. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's referenced in Matthew 1, 23. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's also referenced in Matthew chapter 2. So the reason I have this hope that he will come back again one day is because the same God who promised his first coming promised his second coming. It's very simple. The God who told us Christ would come and be born in the way that he was also told us that he would come back. And so since every minute prediction of his first coming came true, we have every reason to believe. We have every reason to believe that his second coming will come as well. I have a reason for the hope that's within me, and it's due to what we actually celebrate here at Christmas, which is God fulfilling his promise. Christmas is really about, like if I could rebrand Christmas right now, I would say Christmas is about God fulfilling his promise. We saw the promises given, and we saw the promises fulfilled. That gives me hope. And so during Advent, we reflect back on the fact that he came once, and we look forward to the fact that he is coming again. We look back on the promise of his first coming, and we have assurance and certainty and expectation of his second. Jesus himself laid out many predictions of what the world stage would be like before the clock hit midnight, before his coming, when he was just around the corner. Let me read a few of them to you. He said that... He would come back to a world in which there would be wars, famine, and earthquakes on an unprecedented scale. He also said he would come back to a situation that would be parallel to the days of Noah and of Lot in Sodom. And the extraordinary thing here is that he didn't condemn Sodom in this reference for its immorality, even though sodomy is literally a word in our dictionary that we get from the immorality of Sodom. But he condemns them for their materialism and their indifference. Same with Noah. He didn't condemn it for the violence that filled the earth, even though it's filling the earth again. He condemned them for the lack of care. It says that they would eat and drink and be given in marriage. That would be their level of interest. That's all they cared about. How much can I get to eat? How much can I get to drink? How much pleasure can I have right now? The sheer indifference. So the lack of care for God, the living for oneself, the not caring about eternity, just the pleasures of today. He said, that is what it's going to be like right before I come. He also said, Jerusalem would be in the hands of the Gentiles, not the Jews, until it gets ready for my return. And then it will go back into the Jewish hands. And in 1967, the Six-Day War, this happened. Luke 21, 24, that's the reference there. He said the love of many would grow cold and that many would actually fall away from the faith. He said persecution would increase. He said there would be false messiahs, false prophets, widespread deception. He said the church would be afflicted with false teaching. 
This has been happening on a remarkable scale. Um, in fact, in Matthew 24, when the disciples asked him, hey, what are the signs of your coming? The first thing he says was, do not be deceived. Do not be misled. He also said that the gospel would reach the ends of the earth. It would reach every nation before he came back. And in our day and age, this is being fulfilled. Right? We, the, Christians are gathering on every continent, in almost every country, <clears throat> little tribes all over the place. The gospel is going forth. All these pointers come from the teaching of Jesus describing what it will be like at the beginning of the end, before he comes back. And he says, he kind of ends up this teaching by saying, when you see these things begin to happen, lift up your head. I'm coming back. It's like when you get to that Advent calendar, you get into the 20s. You're like, okay, it's only a few days away. Christmas is here. And so when we see these things begin to happen on an ever-increasing scale, that's really the time to perk up as Christians. That's when we actually lift up our heads higher. He says in Luke 21, verse 28, But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This is not wishful thinking, guys. This is expectant waiting. There's no hint of uncertainty in this. Our hope is in the return of Christ. And in fact, nearly every time that Jesus spoke about his second coming and and shared a parable about it, he always added something like, be ready. (laughs) Be alert. Stay on alert then. Because you don't know the day and the hour. Be sober-minded. Keep your lamps lit. And it seems to me somehow that this cry of Jesus um, has escaped our notice just as a church in this nation. Like that, the, the urgent cry of Jesus that his people would be ready, that we would be alert, that the bride make herself ready for his coming, um, didn't make like the top 10 list of what Christians proclaim. This is, again, my opinion, so don't take it for granted or whatever. Just this is my thoughts. My ear to the church is I'm like, I'm trying to feel it out. It seems to me what the world thinks Christians proclaim is like what we're supposed to do. Like love thy neighbor. That's like in the top 10 for sure, you know. Don't be anxious. That's probably up there. Don't be judgy. Don't be too judgy. That's up there. But the why behind it, the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again to execute judgment on the living and the dead, 1 Peter 4, 5 says, that's not on our radar as much. Are we proclaiming his coming? Because if we're not ready, if we don't prepare, the Bible says we can be like children tossed about by the winds and the waves. Let me read Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. As a result, we are no longer children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. The emphasis here is about growing up in Christ. And like Paul says elsewhere, we don't run without a goal. We have a goal. Our goal is to become like Christ. But what this verse says is what can happen instead is that we can get derailed. We can get tossed about by the winds and the waves. So think of a ship being tossed around by the waves. If it doesn't anchor itself, it's going to, if it stops somewhere, you give it five minutes, it'll be over here. It's amazing. It's not like a car. You park a car, it's there. It's got the friction, the tires, the traction, right? But a ship doesn't have that. And so it needs to, an anchor so to hold it down. And that's exactly what the Bible says we need. In Hebrews 6, 19, 
we get that the anchor is hope. Hope acts as an anchor to hold you firm and steadfast until the day of his appearing. Hebrews 6, 19 says this, verse 18 first. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. If we don't have this hope, sooner or later, the waves will get us. We'll be tossed around by fear or doubt or anxiety or some other doctrine or something else. We need an anchor, and that's hope. It's not wishful thinking type hope, but it's the sure and unmovable knowledge that he is coming again. Again, 1 Peter 1, I'm going to read it again. I read it earlier. Therefore, prepare your minds, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix or anchor your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how does this work? So, so let me give you a silly example. So best I can think of, though. Uh, let's say you're going to go to Santa's Wonderland. It's that time of year. If you haven't been yet, check it out, you know? Experience it, for better or worse. You, you'll, you know, time it right. I'll just say that. But let's say you're going to Santa's Wonderlands with your kids, and your goal is to play in the cold snow. You're going to go down Frostbite Mountain or something like that, the snow that was imported from somewhere, right? Probably from the North Pole. Uh, right. That's what they'll say. Um, but let's say on your drive, your AC goes out, okay? And the windows break, so they're stuck up, okay? Worst case scenario, and you're bundled up because you're getting ready to cold. Okay, because you're an adult and you know that in 15 minutes or so, you're going to be back in the cold with the snow, you're actually not too bothered by the short, hot car ride, right? Yeah. The hope of what is coming anchors you for the right now, okay? But what about your children? Your children may start kicking and screaming and complaining, Daddy, I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm hot. You know, like, it's going to amplify until they get cool again. <laughs> but that's what children do. They have a hard time looking forward to what's ahead. Do you see the picture? Yes. We have to ask ourselves which one we are. Let me finally say that it is the official position of this church and of every Christian denomination in this country to have a hope in the second coming of Christ. Okay, it's written in creeds and statements of faith and doctrinal statements and other things that are official. But the fact remains that though many say they have this hope, they do not show it. What would it be like if we believed this? Say your spouse was traveling for a long time and now coming home for Christmas. Would you prepare? Like, would you tidy up? Or say the President of the United States was coming to visit just to hear you out. Wouldn't you prepare? So how much more so should we prepare for the King of Kings, who is coming, by the way, not to visit, but to stay? And we don't prepare for his coming by cleaning and purifying our house, though that is a good discipline, young men. We prepare for his coming by cleaning and purifying our hearts. You can tell when a person has this hope, and they're not just saying it as a parrot in a statement of faith. For example, if a young man comes to me and says, hey, I hope to marry that girl, but he never goes near her, never talks to her, in fact, runs the other way, but he's like, that's my hope. I'm going to be like, right, good luck. You know? Or if someone comes to me and says, I hope to be a professional athlete one day, 
but they don't work out. They never go for a run. They only eat fast food. They finish every night with a tub of ice cream. I'm going to question that hope, right? I'm going to be like, OK, what sport are we talking here? <laughs> In contrast, if someone says, my hope is to climb, climb Mount Everest, and then I see them go purchase all the mountain equi equipment. I don't, I don't, maybe it's a bad example, because I don't know what they buy. They buy all the mountain stuff. And every other weekend, they're going to a smaller rock to climb. And they're hanging out with other rock climbers. And uh, they're watching Free Solo. You know, they're, they're doing all the rock climbing things. I may actually believe that guy. Right? And a man who says to me, my hope is in the return of Christ to this earth, certain things will appear in his life. They will. So what does that look like? 1 John 3, verse 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it, it has not appeared to us, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself as he is pure. Not should, not must, but will. Because if you have this hope to be like him one day, if you have this hope to be like him when you see him as he is on the day of his, his appearing, you will grab every bit of Christ-likeness you can right now. It will matter. The, your speech will matter. Your thoughts will matter. Your attitude matters. You won't be okay with pride anymore. You won't be okay with anger or lust. It'll start to matter. And we don't Prepare for his coming primarily by understanding prophecy, right? Like you can still understand the signs of the times and miss it and not be ready. We prepare by the preparation of the heart. Those who hope in the second coming of Christ purify themselves constantly. And this doesn't mean we wash our sins away. We can't do that, right? 1 John 1.7 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of un unrighteousness. But what does it mean? It means, it means when the Holy Spirit shows me something wrong in my life, I turn from it. It's repentance. It's, it's asking God for the grace and the power to put these sins behind me so that I can experience new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of the defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is the mark of those who are ready. And just like the man who won't work out cannot be said to have a living hope that he's going to be a professional athlete one day, the person who's not purifying themselves cannot be said to have a living hope in the return of Christ. They can have a, maybe a dead hope. A dead hope is a theoretical, like, yes, I believe he's coming back one day with no action behind it. It's just doctrine. But a living hope is one that leads us to purify ourselves in preparation for his coming. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and will not fade away. Okay. Yeah, let me just finally say that our hope of glory is not in anything of this world. I hope you understand that by now. That's what I'm trying to communicate. 
The Christian's hope is not in one day, fill in the blank, one day, get the right job, or one day that I will marry that right person, or one day having the right amount of kids, or one day making enough money, or one day getting noticed by this person or group. No. The Christian hope is in one day, Christ is coming again. And those who have this hope purify themselves as he is pure. And it's his life being produced in us that gives proof to this hope. As Colossians 1, 27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand. The band can come on up. I want to finish by going back to that tradition that I thought I was the only one who did, but everyone does. (laughs) Um, Opening that present on Christmas Eve, The more I thought about this, the more I realized um, this is very much what what Advent is like in that I received something that night that gave me such a joyful anticipation of what was coming the next morning, right? I got a foretaste that night knowing that in the morning, as sure as the sun would rise, that I would get to experience the fullness of the Christmas presents. And so when we celebrate Christmas, and we think of the birth of Christ, it should only give us an abundant, joyful anticipation of the tomorrow morning, the big tomorrow morning, the big day when Christ comes back and we get to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. That is our hope. There are some of us here who still put their hope, our hope in something that's not going to last. And this morning, I, I, I would say, put that hope aside. It's, it's going to run out. You'll eventually have to find another hope, and then another one, and then another one. And I would say, anchor your hope in the coming of Christ. He's coming to make all things new again. A true hope causes us to lift up our heads as our redemption draws near. So one last quote, and we'll pray and be done. This is also from a 16th century guy. First, faith cleaves to the promise as a true and faithful word. And then hope lifts up the soul to wait for the performance of it. Who runs out to meet someone that he believes will not come? The promise is God's love letter to his bride in which he opens his very heart and tells everything he will do for her. Faith reads and embraces it with joy while hope looks out the window with a longing expectation to see her husband's chariot coming toward her. So as time passes, the pool of this world gets stronger. And when life is tough, when it's confusing, when it's constant suffering, when it's painful and heartbreaking and lonely, anchor your hope in his return. He will wipe away every tear. Revelation 3, 11 says, I am coming quickly, Jesus says. So hold fast, be anchored to what you have. So my prayer this morning is that as we lift up our heads, we see the coming of Christ that we would lift up our heads and not be discouraged and realize that one day he's coming to make all things right, that we would lift up our heads in steadfast hope as our redemption draws near. So, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you have given us a living hope, that you are the lifter of our heads, that you have not called us to live just for today, but you've called us to live for eternity, to set our eyes on eternity. 
Lord, would you put a living hope in each one of us this morning? We thank you for giving your son. And I pray that just looking at Christmas, looking at the birth of Christ, our hearts would be flooded with the hope of the future that he is coming again to rule and to reign on this earth. Give us a hope of his return, Lord. We just honor you this morning. We thank you for just the wonderful God that you are. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.